Hi, my name is Infinite, and for more than seven years, I've had the privilege of working as a community organizer on issues related to education equity. And while I've seen a lot of potential for transformation, we have a long way to go. Welcome to Back to Freedom Schools, ongoing conversations about education equity in the state of Vermont. There is nothing like a global pandemic to peel back some of the layers that cover up the racial and social inequities in our state and country. As our public schools face this dilemma head on, the situation on the ground remains way more complicated than the policy and political debates about getting back to normal. Our friend Kathleen Kesson reminds us, it is human nature to want to get back to normal following a crisis of great magnitude, to restore a sense of stability. But what if, she asked, so-called normal forms of social, economic, and ecological behaviors are themselves at the root of the crisis? Now that we are dominated by logistical and safety concerns, priorities have shifted away from addressing the inequities that existed in our public school system before COVID-19. In this program, some of the topics we cover will fall under the broad umbrella of education equity, including areas like school finance and curriculum, with special attention being given to racial equity, literacy, and of course, decolonizing education systems. Thank you for listening. Senior staff attorney with the ACLU of Vermont. That's the American Civil Liberties Union. It's a, a nonprofit that works on litigation policy and public education to protect and advance civil rights and civil liberties. Previously worked at Vermont Legal Aid for three years as an education attorney for low-income people and people with disabilities, mostly, mostly focusing on education, but also in other areas of, of disability rights. I... I'm also a adjunct professor at UVM's College of Medicine uh, LEND program, which is uh, about teaching professionals uh, how to interact and advocate with and for people with disabilities, particularly kids with neurodevelopmental disabilities. Oh, wow. Okay. You, you're a busy man. <laughs> and how many kids you got now? I also have two kids. <laughs> uh, one is four and a half. Another is about to turn one. And, uh, you know, trying to maintain like everybody in this moment. Well, uh, thank you for taking the time out. Happy to hear that you've done so much work in the, in the education field because this conversation is going to focus on talking through, you know, how we can get to uh, education equity uh, in our public schools. I wonder if we can uh, start with disability rights. I'm you know, curious because I haven't focused much of my time there. And so let's go back uh, to pre-COVID, did you what have you seen in our public schools in, in terms of areas of growth where we can uh, be a lot more equitable with, with students in our schools? When it comes to students with disabilities, there's a long history in this country um, and in Vermont of excluding students with disabilities from the general classroom and excluding them really from the school until federal law required it, um, schools around the country would largely 
push students with disabilities to other places, other schools, instead mm -hmm. of trying to uh, mainstream them or have a goal of them being in the classroom if at all possible. Although we have federal law that prevents that in a lot of ways and works towards getting students with disabilities in the classroom and giving them an equal opportunity to, to access education, those things, uh, it's still a work in progress, I'd say. Uh, in Vermont, we have a high percentage of students with disabilities uh, in special education programs that are mostly in the public school. Those programs struggle with resources, uh, always. There's not an infinite amount of resources, of course, but you know, there's also not a significant amount of resources or the needed amount of resources put towards those programs uh, by the federal, federal government or the, or the state. This particularly impacts small school districts because you know, if, in a small district or a small school, when you have just a couple of students with, in, in Vermont, you have these small schools where if a couple of students have significant disabilities, it can be very, you know, it can really raise the costs, uh, the monetary costs for the school district. And so there's, you know, there's some incentives there to, to push kids out of school and push them onto specialized programs, things like that, or not provide the necessary services. It can be a big part of the budget. So there have been changes to special education law to try to deal with that. It's unclear how well that's going. It hasn't really gotten started yet. So we'll have to wait and see in Vermont. For the students themselves, what I'd say is are the biggest issues for students with disabilities are you know, not getting the services that they need and that are even in their individualized plans uh, for addressing their educational needs. Being kicked out of school or placed in alternative programs that don't really meet their needs. And as they get older, if their needs haven't been taken care of when they're young, they start being pushed to drop out of school a lot of the time. And, and some of them drop out willingly because they, they haven't progressed and they're way behind their peers in terms of you know, every academic subject. Uh, it, it presents a really difficult situation for students and parents with disabilities. How about students from low-income households? Have you seen... Um you know, our schools kind of sort of fall short in, in meeting the needs of, of those students. I suppose, you know, while our state, you know, provide, you know, ha has a, everyone has a right to an education here and, and there is a formula that kind of equalizes uh, low income school districts with higher income school districts, you know, where the property taxes are get more money in a given district. There are still inequities when it comes to just how students from low-income families are treated. There's cultural biases in, in our society around the haves and the have-nots, and that plays out in schools. Teachers and in school administrators, by and large, are middle class and upper middle class. Some school districts have a high percentage of, uh, of low-income households in them, and the students you know, go to school, but they don't get the maybe the attention that they need to keep up with their upper-income peers who have greater access to extracurricular activities and, you know, outside tutoring or more highly educated parents who are able to and have the know-how to provide the student with more uh, in the household. Unfortunately, schools aren't making up for that, for those deficits, and, and they, a lot of times they get left behind. So we have this opportunity gap or the achievement gap that seems to just be growing wider as time goes on. And although people, policymakers, pay lip service to it, not much has changed or it hasn't, it hasn't narrowed uh, in, in recent history and it doesn't show any sign of narrowing. So I think that, you know, they have the common problems that low-income people face everywhere, as well as just practical problems like 
getting their kids to school, having to be, you know, deal with truancy because they lose their, you know, the, the household might lose the one vehicle or, you know, the drive, because it's put in the shop for a week. Uh, they may, uh, you know, be sending their kids to school more often, like when there's, when the kid is sick because the parent has to go to work. And, you know, if there is, as, as kids grow older, and again, as they don't succeed academically, they tend to have more behavioral problems in school. And that leads towards, again, uh, more suspension and time out of school, which as many people have described and studies show, leads towards all kinds of bad outcomes. The more, when a kid is suspended, they're more likely to, you know, end up in, in the juvenile justice system and, and dropping out of school and eventually in the incarcerated as they grow into adults. So, you know, just a whole host of problems. And, and you can see it in some of the data, just like, for instance, I remember when I was working with the Burlington School District, you know, they have a high percentage of kids from coming from low-income households. 90% of the kids who received out-of-school suspensions were from low-income households. So it just, you know, there were, and, and some of those were students with disabilities, some of those were students of colors, and there was a lot of disparities there, but 90% um, really shows you something about the cultural dynamics and the failures of the school system early on for, for those kids. Yeah, you know, and, and so but before we go, I do want to talk about those disparities a little bit within the discipline data. But before we get there, I just want to touch on the homeless students and that experience for young people. Yeah, when I was at Legal Aid, I represented a, a good number of, of families who were homeless um, and trying to just get their kids access to their education as they were trying to navigate homelessness. There were a couple of significant barriers to that. You know, th there is good law to protect students in these situations. There's federal law, it's very well known, and schools have a coordinator to deal with homeless students. Even so, when I would represent, uh, for instance, a, a young person and their, and their parents who had to move in with the grandparents because they lost their housing, but they wanted to keep the kid in the same school, they're, you know, the schools are required to allow that under this federal law. But some of the times, a couple of times I dealt with this, the schools were actually prosecuting or, 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 or saying that they were going to sue the parent for money because they were trying to get into a district that they no longer lived in. You know, and we're talking about letters saying, letters to the parents saying, you owe the school, you know, $10,000 for uh, saying that they were manipulating and, and lying to the school. I mean, it, and, and not recognizing the reality and the requirements under law. And I think schools just put up barriers and scare people a lot um, to get them, you know, if the student is going to be, you know, perhaps be more difficult or have a harder time and need more support, you know, the instinct in a lot of circumstances, not all, but in, in some at least, is to, you know, try and get, get rid of the problem. And the problem is viewed in these circumstances as the, the kid and their family. Right. And so, <laughs> Have you seen this play out um, differently across race, the, the, homeless, the homelessness issue? I don't, you know, I don't have um, enough experience to say like what's typical and what's not. I think in my experience representing students of youth and parents or students of color and, and parents of color in education matters is that, you know, whether it's discipline or attendance or you know, just academic achievement, there's just a lot of suspicions around 
whatever kind of you know potential like juvenile delinquency issue whatever comes up those students are just treated as more suspect and more of a, a problem to be resolved in a way that results in them leaving the school and going being somewhere else as opposed to like being brought into the community and you know having arms wrapped around them mm-hmm. i remember your uh report a few years ago uh kicked out can you talk a little bit about what you learned then and and maybe if you've seen anything uh change since then <laughs> sure the report, it's reports five years old now so it's like you know uh <laughs> It's, it's, you know, it feels like, you know, it should be dated, I guess I'll say at the same time. And I think it had, you know, I mean, I'll just talk about what the report said and and what its impact may have been. The report at its core focused on, on exclusionary discipline. So suspension and expulsion in Vermont also talked about school related arrests and, you know, referrals to law enforcement from schools. Um, just looking at federal data that was available publicly. In the end, what it showed is that out-of-school suspension and in-school suspension, uh, Black students in Chittenden County, which was where we could really see the data, and, and you know, because there's a, enough percentage of Black families, those students were two to three times more likely to be suspended than, than white students. In Franklin County, Native American students were two or three times more likely to be suspended than white students. Across the state, by and large, it was... Uh, although on average it was about for students with disabilities were three times more likely to be suspended than, than students without disabilities. So those are, and, and so those are pretty significant disparities. You know, we brought that with a host of policy recommendations and legal changes to the legislature. Unfortunately, the lobbyists and representatives of school related associations were just totally against making any of those changes. Um, we did get a couple of years of reporting and reports from the Agency of Education, which showed that, you know, showed the disparities we, we talked about were, and the numbers were actually somewhat worse uh, than we talked about, although then, but there seemed to be a, a, a trajectory that they were coming down. I have heard anecdotally from people, a lot of people saw the report, took it seriously, wanted to do something in their school and in their district, so that was a positive outcome. And, and I think that schools are looking more at positive behavioral reinforcements, restorative justice programs, peer to peer programs, and keeping kids, you know, if you're going to, if a, if a child can't be in the classroom, still keeping them in school um, so that, so that there's less risk of them, you know, being in a dangerous situation at home or just not being able to proceed academically and keep up. And frankly, you know, not letting it be any kind of reward because if the child's struggling in school, they might want to be out. <laughs> so, and, you know, making sure they get their, their meal if they're on a free and reduced lunch program. Uh, there's a whole host of reasons why you want to keep a kid in school, especially for, for low-income families. So I think hopefully it made a, a little bit of a change in, in the mindset around those things. But suspension, expulsion, that's how things have been done in education uh, when students misbehave, you know, made for the classroom or aren't, aren't able to be in the classroom in a way that allows the normal setting to continue. That's how we've done things since public school was, was invented. And so it's, it's a big change in how to think about things really uh, yeah. for school systems. So here we are about to uh, reopen schools, you know, on the heels of a really tumultuous spring semester. I won't go into any details uh, around 
just how much uh, the stay-at-home order and the state of emergency exposed inequality and the inequities that exist in our schools. What I would prefer to spend a little bit more time, you know, before we wrap up is just dreaming big about maybe some of the um, recommendations that, you know, you made in your report or even bigger than that, right? And so the question is, you know, if you could wave a magic wand and, you know, have your way, what would you say to uh, not just legislators, but school administrators, classroom teachers, school board members, you know, this is all hands on deck. You know, this is uh, special educators. What what should we be uh, doing? What data should we be looking at to see um, if things are going in the right direction? And and what should we be doing to get it and uh, going in that direction? Well, it's a big question, obviously. Um, and I'm not an education expert. Uh, so I want to make that clear. No, at least having the experiences I've had representing families in, in difficult situations with their schools, having familiarity with data around, you know, different kinds of disparities, whether it's school discipline or academic achievement. You know, I, I think, you know, there are like common sense, practical things that can be done. And there are more big picture culture change things that that are needed. I'm not, you know, I'm not one to really talk about the culture change because I don't know how to do that. (laughs) I think that that's a very complex question. I think there are a lot of great teachers, great administrators, you know, who get this stuff and are trying to do better. At the same time, you know, it it really is, it's beyond the people, right? It's really about systems and how how much funding and services is, are provided to those who most need them. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, even though we have this, you know, somewhat equalizing formula, we still don't have the resources to improve upon the idea of equal opportunity to access. Like that's a very, you know, convoluted thing. And it really is a low floor. Whereas like, so what I would want to do big picture is raise the floor. Like we don't just want equal opportunity to access an education. We want an equitable education. We want students who are struggling to get additional services. And for that to be a focus, uh, I think a lot of the focus, and it's because of the way we do education funding based on property taxes and, and the, the, you know, the class structure of our society, you know, we don't, uh, you know, we, we kind of, schools tend to focus on those who have the most power in their community and those tend to be upper income people. And so you get, you know, honors classes and AP classes and cross country skiing programs and, you know, that kind of stuff. But, uh, but you don't get additional remedial reading programs or a a solid, you know, a large minority, if not a majority of the students. So I think, you know, that kind of shift is something that needs to be figured out, you know, more practically uh, and, and just more like generally the policy recommendations in the report, you know, were specific to school discipline and school exclusion, but did focus on a couple of things, uh, big picture wise. Uh, one was keep students in the school 
if at all possible, and make sure that they're getting instruction if at all possible. When they're not going to be in school, guarantee that they're going to still get some form of instruction out of the school building. Uh, Massachusetts does this. You know, they, they guaranteed any student that's going to be suspended for more than, I think, five or 10 days at a time is going to get tutoring and alternative education services outside the school building. So that was, that's a big piece of it, just making sure that education continues uh, and doesn't, that there isn't this interruption, uh, which can last for up to a year in Vermont, which is a very long time for, for any young person. Uh, the other things, in, you know, were things like removing school resource officers and not referring kids to law enforcement for what used to be viewed as common childhood behavior. You know, you know kids are not able to control their impulses. Uh, even, you know, uh, and data shows that that kind of executive functioning doesn't really fully develop until you're like 25. We shouldn't be treating them, um, and this happens a lot to students of color, unfortunately, treating them as if they're, even in high school, as if they're little adults uh, or, or just younger adults. Uh, they're not. They're not there yet. And so, and I, we used to recognize this, that, that kids are kids and adults are adults, but, you know, now we, if, if two kids get into a, a fight at school, whether it's a middle school or high school or whatever, you know, schools a lot of times turn around and call the police. Uh, and that results in an arrest and a citation, involvement in juvenile court or criminal court. And that is traumatic for a student and it will change how they view themselves and also changes how the community views them uh, in a very negative way. So uh, that's another big part of, of the puzzle there. And we, we need more access to data, more data collection. What kind of data collection? Everything from, you know, academic achievement uh, to, and that, that goes, you know, showing disparities, showing where inequities may be uh, across the state for every school. Uh, that information needs to be available to every parent. It should be sent to them, frankly, and examined and worked on. We need certainly data around school discipline. Uh, as I think it's, it's one of these canaries in the coal mine. I think it tells you how well or poorly a school is doing on equity measures when it comes to either students of color, students with disabilities, students from low-income households. And there, there, there could be a whole host of other, range, you know, a whole range of other things, how special ed programs are doing, what the achievements are. Um, we have some data around like how the percentage of students that matriculate to college and how well they do, but very little. Um, in Vermont, you know, mo most other states really track this stuff, if nothing else, as an accountability measure yep. for schools. So, um, and, and the, but we just don't have access to that. Okay. So, I, I, you know, that, that kind of um, brings me to a, another question that, you know, I, I didn't think about before, but it's now, you know, what you're saying about access to data is now making me think about the, what is the act? It's a, it's a privacy act. For, 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 yeah, um, and just like how um, some in some ways, and and it, and it reminds me even like around the, the pandemic, like how um, when at what point does you know the health of a community is prioritized over the private privacy of the, of the individual uh, who is FERPA really protecting, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't know, <laughs> you know, any insight on on that tension. It, it feels like. Uh, it's come up uh, quite a bit now with um, with, with COVID-19. Absolutely. I, I think 
FERPA is it's a complex, confusing law. Um, I do think, regardless of whatever it says and its intention, you know, to protect the privacy of students in many different ways, I think it is used as uh, a way for whether it's schools or or the state to prevent accountability for what's going on in, in our schools. And be, that's because we have a lot of small schools here. And what, so what they'll say is, well, we can give you data on these schools, but in, in a lot of these schools, you're not gonna get the numbers. And this is particular for students, students of color and you know, where we have minority populations that are relatively small or in comparison to the rest of the population. And that's the, that's the case in Vermont generally outside of Chittenden County in particular. And so they'll say like, we can't give you data. We're not gonna tell you the numbers because they're, whatever the number is for what you're asking for, it's less than 10 uh, or less than 11. And if the number is less than 11, we're not gonna give you the number because you could somehow identify who that person is. You know, I, I don't see that as realistic in most circumstances. And I don't know that it actually violates privacy. And even so you could, you know, put numbers together, you know, maybe it's not for one school, but it's a district or a supervisory union. You could put these numbers together and at least get some indication, but then they say, well, we don't have the resources to do that. So we're not going to do it. And it's, it's just a way to prevent accountability, whether that's the intention or not, that's what, that's the reality. And so we need to find a way around it. If nothing else, we need to say like, you know, there are some issues that may be more important than, than an individual's privacy, like privacy interests are always balanced. They're never absolute. So, you know, we need to, to think about it in, in that kind of way. You know, I'm a privacy advocate, so I'm very protective of, of those things. At the same time, privacy should not be used as a shield to prevent us from understanding the gross inequities in our, in any, any system, especially our education system. You know, I think, that feels like a, a good place to, to wrap it up. I'm going to come looking for you again. <laughs> Anytime. Anytime. Uh, thank you for your time, Jay. No, thank you for having me. Hi, my name's Elijah Hawks, and uh, I'm at home right now working with my colleagues at Randolph Union, getting ready to reopen school in a couple of weeks. I'm principal there, I've been there nine years. And um, prior to that, I was, a, I was a principal in New York City at the James Baldwin School for six years, where I was lucky enough to be the, the founding principal and on the founding team of that school. And prior to that, I was an English teacher, a high school English teacher, and also spent some time working abroad in, in schools uh, in West Africa. And before all that, I grew up in Vermont, went to Harwood Union High School and grew up in, grew up in Moortown. And so um, coming back to Vermont was a return home for me and um, very glad, very glad to be here and glad to be doing the work we're doing at, at Randolph Union. That's awesome. Thank you for taking the time out today. And that is a beautiful shirt you have on. My James Baldwin shirt. That is, that is a nice shirt. Um, so I do, I, I, so I, again, I, I want to start with it's just going back in time a little bit, uh, not that far back, you know, let's just say 2019 for, you know, for example, and talk a little bit about some of the areas in public education where we kind of have fallen short of, um, of equitable, uh, uh, you know, education for 
black and brown kids, for kids with disabilities, special education, uh, kids in, from, from low-income households. What have you seen in, 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 in schools before the COVID pandemic? I think one of the areas where schools can often fall short in terms of the institutions work with young people and families from groups who have been historically marginalized, oppressed by other institutions in our country. One way we often fall short is by avoiding the conversation about structural inequity, oppression and colonialism as part of the fabric of our country. So part, part one of the ways I think that schools can do a better job of, of, of working with the diverse identities that walk in, walk in our door each day is, is by taking a really courageous look at our history as a country and a courageous look at contemporary policy that shapes our lives and help, let's say, the young person who, whose parents are working two jobs and still can't afford their rent, help that young person understand that that's being done by design. People are making money while they starve and that this is the country they live in. I think we can do a better job of courageously reflecting back to young people the circumstances in which they live and studying that in a social, historical, and economic, personal, and cultural um, context. Because I think schools don't do a very good job of, again, talking courageously about the history of this country and contemporary policy context. So, some, so what I'm talking about is largely about the curriculum and how the curriculum needs to mirror the realities of our lives so that we can be better able to change those realities for the better. So there's a, there's a lot that schools can do to put breakfast in a kid's belly, to put lunch in their belly, and maybe even give them something to eat when they go home. We can do that. We have some of the infrastructure for that. And we can, and we can provide them with a nurse. I mean, not all schools are able to do that, but in, in Vermont, a lot of schools are. My school is. We can provide them with mental health care while they're in school. But if those students and their peers graduate from the very caring institution and still aren't able to go on as uh, graduates and citizens to change the unjust conditions of their lives, what have we really done and provided a little bit of a hiatus, a little bit of an oasis from the hours of eight, eight, to, eight to three each day for a couple of years? We haven't done much to change the circumstances that are creating those inequities in the first place. So that's, I think, part of our charge as a school is to try to serve the needs of the broader society, the broader democratic society. And so that has to do for me a lot about the curriculum. And the good news is there is that if you want to carefully approach topics of race and class and inequity in the curriculum and do it well, you need to be super attentive to the, to the identities and the needs of the children who are in that classroom. You can't just clumsily walk into a discussion about race and class and inequity. You can't, you can't, you can't do it with, without, a lot, without a great deal of care. And if you're trying to be very careful and intentional about that kind of curriculum, then you have to do your own work as a teacher about where, who you are and where you come from and what biases and baggage you bring to that conversation about race and class. So for me, in part, the courageous curriculum content is a point of departure into courageous self-reflection for teachers and it's a point of departure into, into personalizing the work of the school so that we're super attentive to the needs of every, of every child who's there. How do schools sometimes reduce or exasperate existing inequities among students? So in what ways do schools uh, exacerbate the, did you say, or improve? Or, or, or reduce. So, so, so how? 
you know, I think we're familiar with, with, with some of the, the inequities. And so, you know, if we can start thinking about, you know, more um, specific or concrete ways, you know, in, in terms of how schools reduce or exasperate those, those, those inequities. Well, one of the ways that we can make those inequities worse is by, is by, is by inviting people to do really meaningful and important and life-sustaining things after school or voluntarily or in a way that depends upon the means of the family to get it done. So a school could have a really robust foreign travel program, but if it's all after school and it's all dependent on the parents and the families who have the means to, to get the child to and from the after school meetings and even to raise the money or have the money come out of their pocketbook to help, to help the young person travel abroad, that's only gonna exacerbate the inequities. But if a school can take that that very worthwhile endeavor, that amazing educational experience of, of living um, and engaging with people from another culture abroad and provide the funds itself so that every child has equal, equal access to that opportunity, then we can reduce some of those barriers that exist outside the school itself. We had some success doing that. One of the things we've done at Randolph Union the past you know, five or 10 years is if there's a really special after school thing we try to bring it down into the school day. So you might have a group of people who are, who are interested in traveling to France or traveling to Spain. We try to carve out space in the school day to make that a teacher's teaching responsibility and bring the kids into the classroom between the hours of eight and three. If you give any group of students and a teacher 200, 250 minutes a week to do something special, they can get a lot done. They can raise 10 to $20,000 over the course of a semester. To really, uh, to really enable all the children to participate in that kind of an event. Um, we've done this, the same thing with, with service, with serv others like service clubs, our interact club, and a lot of other initiatives that might exist after school, whether it was climate change or restorative justice or racial justice. Um, we, we, we try to bring those things down into the school day to a certain degree and really adequately fund them and, and fundraise. So that's, that's, that's one way um, that schools can try not to individualize things such that they're dependent on the means that the, that the child and their family have, but try to collectivize things and collectively raise money for everyone's welfare so that everyone has access. Um, that's a responsibility schools, I think, need to take really seriously. And so, so beyond the, the school system, uh, what do you feel is needed uh, to address inequities and the larger community and in, in our state in particular of Vermont. That you, you mean as like part of the work that a school must do or just in, in general? Beyond the school system. Beyond, and, and so we're talking about the larger community and in, in, in the state of Vermont, you know? And so right now, um, you know, we're in a, um, we're, we're deep into election season, right? Um, and there's a lot of attention, uh, I think, being paid to, you know, the national politics. Um, you know, they take up, you know, a lot of air in the room, but, you know, just as important, you know, there's, you know, more local context, and, and, you know, there's, you know, there's, uh, you know, we can go in a couple of different directions here, right? Um, you know, we can kind of stay the course, there, you know, that we've been going, or we can, some turns and twists. And so I guess, um, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, uh, you know, we know schools can't do this on, on their own. And so, you know, beyond the this, this school system, uh, what do we need communities in the state of Vermont to, 
take seriously in order to really address you know in, in, inequities uh, at large well i think I think communities need to be doing the kind of work that one can be doing in schools, that kind of courageous courageous uh, self reflection and, and, and confronting of, of history, building of relationships and community bonds that 's something that Vermonters can be very good at, and so that can give us a lot of strength to withstand certain storms and it can also just have us give us a better sense of who we are and where where we've come from so some of the reckoning that has happened some of the truth telling some of the the courageous storytelling that has been happening with the black lives matter movement in recent months and um and other conversations i think is very important for vermonters to continue to engage in and and it and it ties directly into the work that schools can be doing at the same time i'm a and, and I, you know, I, I largely believe, and it's a matter of faith in terms of my work in, in, in schools, that a community has the resources it has to solve its own problems. As a, as a point of departure, I feel very strongly about that, that we need to look internally and see what strengths we have to bring to bear on the problems we, we face. But I also, Infinite, like I look at, I look at the debates that happen in Montpelier and the debates, debates that happen in, 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 in our towns and, you know, there'll be one group that's like wants to raise the minimum wage. And then we also want to, we also need to pave the roads and we also want to bring down healthcare premiums. And we also uh, need to provide early childhood education. We want to put, we want to repair the roof over the school. You know, there's like, we want, there's so much need that I don't think we can solve those problems without a nationwide redistribution of wealth and a radical rethinking of our wage and taxation policies that, that have just been moving wealth upward over the past two or three decades in an extraordinary fashion. And, and until we do that at the national level, I feel like we're gonna be arguing with each other over what little sh shred of the pie we have. And we're always gonna be leaving one of our problems unsolved or like Vermont's worried about raising the minimum wage because if New Ham because what if New Hampshire doesn't do it or like we can't consider climate change legislation in Vermont unless unless New Hampshire and Maine and New York also consider it like there are some of these problems that, that are regional and national in scope so I do think the national election has a lot a lot of relevance there especially the congressional um, elections um, mm -hmm. as well as the national ones yeah you know I, I've I, you know so I work for a nonprofit and my, um, you know, my salary is highly dependent on, on grants. Um, and so, you know, every year I'm, I'm you know, uh, uh, writing, you know, uh, for, for grants to try and do some of the work that I love to do in Vermont. And, you know, one of the things that I've gotten from some of uh, the big foundations out there is, you know, in terms of racial equity, why Vermont? Why Northern New England? Uh, you know, why, wh and as opposed to uh, Hartford, Connecticut, or, or um, you know, um, more, you know, urban uh, places in New England that have a concentration of, of, of people of color. And so how do we make the case for racial equity work and, and anti-Black racism in Vermont when uh, Black folks are less than 2% of the population in Vermont. I read a piece earlier this summer that was really struck me about how it was an effort by, um, by a black educator and leader to shift the paradigm away from thinking about what is it that, and I'm not saying that, that this is 
She wasn't saying, you know, shift your attention away from the black and brown children in your schools. She wasn't saying that, but she was trying to flip the script a little bit so that there was some thinking like, you may think that you really need to focus on what black and brown children need in this racist society. But if one only focuses on that and one doesn't focus on what the white children need who are growing up in this racist society and who grow up to then put their knees on the necks of people who are asking for air and mercy, that if we don't really reckon with the fact that the perpetrators of a great deal of wrong in this world are, are not getting the attention they need to be moral and ethically better people. I think there's a case to be made that if we don't focus a lot on what, on what people of all colors need in this society, we're gonna miss an opportunity to uh, prevent a lot of harm. The work that white people need to do and that they need to do in collaboration with our, our black and brown brothers and sisters is just as important as the work that needs to happen in a place where those majorities and percentages are different because the children here are gonna grow up to be employers and congressmen and women and business owners and they can grow up with certain sensibilities and priorities and a moral compass that moves in one way or they can grow up with a different set of, of, of priorities. Um, also, I don't know, I think Vermont, is Vermont a special state in the country? You know, I don't know, I think it is. And I think people look to Vermont for a kind of like, I get the sense, I don't know, I don't travel that much, Maybe, maybe you have think something to share about that. I don't like, people sometimes look to Vermont for a kind of groundedness, a kind of like community, uh, a, a priority placed on community well-being, a, a priority placed on childhood welfare. And so if, if Vermont isn't doing the work, then we're missing an opportunity to be, uh, to be leaders. Mm -hmm. I think people will look to us for leadership in, in, in certain domains. Um, I, thank you for that. Um, and, and I guess I'm going to um, go into more detail around inequities uh, in Vermont uh, that are similar across the country, right? Um, and, that's, and, that, and it's a very fundamental one, and that's reading, right? You, you know, and literacy. We often hear about students um, in school or graduating who have either not learn to read at all, or maybe can read and, and can't comprehend what they're reading, you know, and, and, and are able to graduate. What do you think is happening there? That's across the country. That's a, that's a nationwide thing um, across, and Vermont is no better. Yeah. I think what's happening as economic inequality worsens and as the, the wages of the working class don't keep up with inflation, parents are working more, parents are more stressed, and parents are spending less time reading with their children. That's just my guess. I also think that the, um, the introduction of, of screens, which are now nearly ubiquitous, is also interrupting a lot of the kind of traditional storytelling and naming of the world that is a foundation of, of literacy. Um, so I think those two things, the, the economic situation for so many working class and low income families is a part of the, as part of the challenge. Because I, I know that like, I am able to, with my, my job and my station and my good fortune, I am able to have the energy every night to give my kids 45 minutes with the book. And I know that if I had to work another job on top of my job, that I wouldn't have that energy. So there's, there's, I think there's an economic background to some of the struggle 
that our young people are facing. And then I think there's just this coincidence with, with the technology and the explosion of screens that is substituting for some of what used to happen between people and, and text. And I think that uh, that makes the job of elementary educators harder. And I think that middle school and high school educators are just now realizing, and we've been caught a bit flat-footed, I admit that I have been, realizing that, wow, we, in our middle school and high school training, we weren't trained to teach children how to read in this more basic way. So middle school and high school, uh, middle school and high schools, at least mine, has been caught a bit flat-footed, kind of realizing like, okay, we need to increase our skills in this regard as teachers of, of reading. Um, in ways that we hadn't we hadn't been trained to do or hadn't thought that we would we would need to do in the past. So there's some institutional adjustment and reform that needs to catch up with these with these societal trends. Um, that's just my kind of like back of the napkin speculations about what I'm seeing. Okay, and so uh, what what types of data or information do you think are most important for us to be paying attention to in order to know whether um, uh, learning and educational experiences and outcomes are improving? Like what, what kind of data should we be looking at? To try to measure whether or not we're, we're, we're addressing the problem. We're back on the right track, right? Because, you know, there's, you know, there, you know we've, we've, we've had, um, or, you know, on the right track, maybe not necessarily back on the right track, but on the right track, right? Um, you know, there's always been, you know, some, um, you know, questions about standardized tests and, and the, you know, um, whether that's a good measure or not. Quite frankly, you know, this is a thing that we'll be talking about for a long time, right? So, I mean, just in your opinion, I mean, what, what, should, what can we look at, you know, um, for in terms of information and data in a systematic way mm -hmm. to see uh, whether uh, young people are, um, you know, not just reading at grade level, uh, but are having, you know, a quality learning experience and are having uh, 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 improved outcomes, educational outcomes. Well, um, in, in terms of reading, I think, I think there's, some, there's some utility in, in standardized tests. Uh, I, I think that the utility of standardized tests can be, starts to get skewed when they become high stakes. So when a a student's promotion from one grade level to the next or a teacher's salary or how a school is judged when that when that depends too heavily on any one test that can just really mess with people's motivations around it but i think there there certainly can be some useful measures um, the national assessment of educational progress the naep that happens every two years has traditionally been something that psychometricians and experts in testing think is a good you know it's a good measure it's got like enough people involved to really give us a sense of like how the country is is doing and some basic academic skills. So I think there's some tests out there that could be useful. And I don't know if this exactly answers your question about how to measure our progress in schools with young people as learners, but I'm thinking also about the youth risk behavior survey that, that, that comes out nationwide through the CDC and that Vermont also implements every two years. You know, there are questions in there about when, you know, when in the last two weeks have you been in a car without a, I don't, without a seatbelt? Or when have you been in the car the last two weeks with someone who was smoking? Or when have you, like all of those questions. Mm -hmm. I, it'd be very interesting to ask, especially at the middle school level and maybe the elementary school level, you know, when was the last time an adult read you a book 
when was the last time that you, you know, sat and read a book for more than 20 minutes? It'd be very interesting to start to ask some questions because if we're confused about where the literacy gaps are coming from, we, we could ask kids and families more questions about that. How many screens are there in your home? And what rooms are those screens? Um, I don't know, just might be interesting. I'd like to gather more data from children and families about that, about the habits of reading and the habits of screen watching in the homes mm-hmm. and sort of like try to cross-reference that with what we're seeing in schools. Yeah. Uh, I almost think that like there might be some work to do to tie it to like adverse childhood effects, the, the ACEs tests that try to measure like indications of abuse in a person's life and then trace it to like educational outcomes in the future. I don't, I'm not saying that like watching television is abuse, but like too much screens and too little reading is perhaps a kind of neglect. Yeah. So, you know, this past spring, uh, and this was really in the context of, you know, the, uh, our, um, sort of college system, you know, on the, on the verge of, you know, collapsing, right? This is, but also into the state of emergency and the stay-at-home order. Vermont Governor Phil Scott said, I believe it is possible for Vermont to emerge from this crisis on a path towards having the very best education system in the country and ultimately in the world. What would you say the very best education system in the world might look like? What, what, do you, what, what, what would that look like to you? I think the very best educational system in the world would, would um, the schools would be intergenerational spaces because it's, it's, uh, it's not natural to the, to the human condition over the millennia of our evolution to isolate young kids from old people we would our schools would would better integrate with our society young and old would come together i think that's developmentally healthy for everybody our schools also would recognize that young people or young adults are are just that they're young adults they're they are able to use adult tools to address adult problems and we would put adult tools in the hands of young people more and we would have them working more actively to to solve societal problems um big and big and small and we you know we see that in in our technical and career centers we we we, at a certain age we start putting adult tools in the hands of children to to build and make things but we should treat calculus in the same way and we should treat science in the same way biology we should treat uh, the study of literature and writing in the same way we should be putting those skills to work to address the problems that need solving in our society. And so young people and their teachers would have to be much more connected to the professional and economic life of the place where they live. It's a problem that I can become an English teacher after having done well and liked my English classes in high school, enjoyed my English classes in college, and then go on to be an English teacher without ever having interacted with any professionals other than English teachers. What in all of that trajectory towards becoming a teacher has prepared me to prepare young people to use the skills of, of language and writing and literature to do anything other than become an English teacher? These, these hermetically sealed um, professional tracks that teachers are on, such that if I get an interview with someone and they tell me I want to become a teacher because I really liked, I want to become a, 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 a math teacher because I really liked being in math classes. I'm like, ah. I don't know if that's quite what we, our society needs. So I think the, the, the best educational you know, system in, in the world would, would more deeply integrate young adults with the adult world in, in addressing um, contemporary challenges and getting work done that the community needs doing 
And that would also include study and work in the policy context that shape our lives together. You know, there would be much more literacy about what happens in places of power and how it, it shapes um, the lives we live. Okay, so I got one more question for you. This might be a tough one. I heard, uh, I heard you have a book out and I'm curious about what part of your book that you had the most enjoyment writing about and sharing with the world. The part that I enjoyed, I think the writing the most was, uh, it's, I don't know, it's the afterword or the conclusion because uh, the influences there were um, James Baldwin's letter to his nephew. Mm -hmm. He wrote a letter to his nephew, it was published in the fire next time um, when his nephew was 15. And he was trying to discuss with that, with that young man what kind of world he lived in, what kind of armor he needed to survive it, and what kind of spiritual and other resources he had in his past to bring to bear. And then there's Ta-Nehisi Coates' letter to his 15-year-old son. And then there's Edwige Dandekot. She wrote an essay in, um, I think it's her collection, it's called The Fire This Time. She wrote an essay about how she thought she needed to write a letter to her daughters about the state of the world, but she couldn't bring herself to do it. And she wrote it and tore it up and wrote it and tore it up. And ultimately she decided she was just going to bring them to go see some of the, the struggles of the world that, that, that they need to see as part of their world. She took them to the border between Haiti and Dominican Republic to learn about the refugee camps that were there. And then there's, there's a book that this, this Muslim father, uh, Omar Gobash wrote to his child to, to try to empower him with some sense of understanding of like the world that they live in. What I appreciate about all these letters is that it's adults who are taking, are taking a stand in terms of the love that they have for their children and in terms of what they think they need in order to get by in the world. And those adults know that they're not indoctrinating their children with anything by telling them what's important. They're giving their children something strong and powerful to like respond to. You know, there's, it's like honest, courageous conversation with young people and all of those communications. And I think that's what school should be like. And I think young people should have an opportunity to react to adults who have strongly held beliefs. And I think that they should be invited to see the world as it is and do the hard work that's required. So for me, writing that, that piece and seeing the intersections of all of these different writers was, uh, was meaningful for me. And it was also meaningful for me to then ask myself, well, where, these, are all, these are all people of color. Where are, the where, are the, where are the white parents writing such letters to their children? And, um, and I, I'm, I'm still searching for that. But I think that teachers can be that. Teachers can be, every lesson you teach can be a letter to those children that pours out of your heart. And it has, has everything to do with who they are and who you are and the world we live in. And again, the courage we're going to need to endure in the struggle. Thank you, Elijah. I really appreciate that. You've been listening to Back to Freedom School. Ongoing discussions about some of the challenges facing Vermont's education system and some of the opportunities to achieve equity in Vermont's education system. I'm your host, Infinite. Thanks again for listening.